0: Welcome to Between the Covers on KBOO Portland 97 FM. I'm your host this week, Avi Marr. Jenna Friedman is an Oscar nominated writer, director, and comedian. She's the host of the comedic true crime series Indefensible on AMC Plus and the creator of Soft Focus on Adult Swim. Friedman has been published in The New Yorker and has appeared on such programs as The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Conan on TBS, and The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, and in the Sundance hit movie, Palm Springs. Behind the scenes, she has field produced for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and has written for Late Show with David Letterman, The Connors on ABC, and Barrett's subsequent movie film. Welcome to Between the Covers, Jenna Friedman.
1: Thank you for having me. Of course.
0: Um, You said you were inspired to go into comedy by 9-11. You said it made me realize that life is short (laughs) and random. (laughs) It's already funny, huh? And sometimes tragic. And that I didn't want to die in a business suit. Can you say more about that?
1: It's so dark and it was great to write it. I had someone else ask me about it and to talk about it out loud. And I'm going to do it. It's so intense and unlikable in the back of my mind. This person's making 9-11 about them. But I do think that happening as I was heading off to college really impacted the choices that I made after that. Seeing it happen on live TV, really, I mean, the images are seared into my my mind and I think everybody who saw it or who was around when that happened when I just was thinking why I became a comedian because my mom was an accountant my dad's a doctor they're very much not artists that was really an inciting incident that made me just pursue this really unorthodox career path
0: so you actually um, came into the comedy world through your undergrad anthropology thesis what was it like starting to do improv from such a serious dissertation premise or whatever
1: I was a senior in college mm-hmm. I had no idea what this world was I was in these classes with kids who just were sorry I'd wanted to get on sml and this world meant so much to them and to me it was I think it was so much easier to open myself up to that because it was under the guise of research and I didn't have to actually be vulnerable. And then I just fell in love. It was the coolest thing. When I started doing it, it really wasn't in the zeitgeist yet. I had no idea what it was. And I stumbled upon this world where you were your own writer, performer, and director at the same time, making something out of nothing with a bunch of other like-minded people and it just it was like playing make-believe as an adult it was so freeing and cool and I came from this regimented liberal arts college where I studied anthropology I was fighting to not go into you know finance or consulting like everybody I went to school with I was really and then when I found this it just kind of confirmed everything I ever thought I wanted to do And it was so exciting to be part of that, even just as a fly on the wall with no aspirations other than kind of being in the moment and in the classes and learning about this weird subculture I had no idea existed.
0: Looking back on it, do you think there's something you know about yourself that made it so appealing and freeing to you in particular, especially given that you entered it with such low stakes, right? You were there as an observer.
1: I always wanted to... to, be a quote-unquote artist I always had an artistic streak but it just wasn't really ever nurtured yeah. and so it was the first time in my life that I was really able to nurture this kind of thing that I had suppressed and um the that particular place in time 2003 Chicago Improv Olympic, was really magical it was really really cool awesome. and um yeah
0: so what happened when you wrote your thesis, though, got a little different. You-
1: I wrote the paper. I had an advisor, Michaela Di Leonardo. She's a feminist Marxist. Brilliant. She was encouraging me. It's not just about women and comedy. It's about race, class, gender, the political economy around this world that you're in. Write about that. You're an intern. You're getting sexually harassed. Write about that. And I was nervous too, and I didn't even write about the real harassment that I faced. I wrote about, I wrote this one very harmless anecdote and uh, Sharna Halpern, who was the head of Olympic, read my paper because a blogger asked if I, if I could give her permission to put it on her site. I naively did not thinking anyone would read it or care and the whole improv scene read it. And uh, I got kicked off my team at Improv Olympic and kind of blacklisted from the community. And it was really, really it felt like the worst breakup I had ever had. And uh, that's how I got in stand up. Such serious
0: beginnings to all the funnest things
1: you can <laughs> Oh, I mean, comedy's not comedians are not like funny. I mean, we're I, I we're no. funny on stage, maybe, but the career is not like a funny career. I mean, it's interesting and fascinating. And I've never laughed harder than I've laughed. There are moments when I did my adult swim show, when I worked on Borat, when I was doing improv, where I, when I was at the daily show, I remember I had physical pain from laughing so hard during one of the segments that we shot. Like you don't get that in other jobs, but but as a whole over 15 years of looking back on it it's not it's hard but that also prepares you i think getting that kind of nothing was as hard as some of the stuff that i had to endure back then and so it just prepares you
0: yeah it gives you a tougher skin
1: yeah and i guess you know if it if it was so hard for me to take i would have just stopped doing it mm-hmm. so i would have you know been in like an advertising job right now if if I could not take it but nothing I have it, it only it just it, it got I and mean, it just keeps getting easier in certain ways
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: and I hope it will continue to but the, the hardest part was being really an unknown female comedian with no credits to my name in the time before the internet mm-hmm. trying to work in this like unregulated environment with no barriers to entry mm-hmm. I talk about it in the book, but one of the first people that really supported me in a lot of female comics was a guy who was an actual registered sex offender in Chicago. <laughs> he ran the new talent shows. Good gig for him. But he was. His sexual offense, I talk about in the book, too, was it wasn't, you know, it, it was a gropy thing more than it was like an actual, you know, assault, assault. But. I, he wasn't you know, none of us were ever alone with him. And, <laughs> but that was, it's so crazy to talk about. I, Beth Stelling and Cameron Esposito came up with me and I talked to them both about this guy. And he gave us all our first starts because when you're a young stand-up all you need at first is stage time to get better. And the person who actually gave us stage time was this guy. And the other guys who maybe weren't sex offenders weren't giving us stage time. So it was really weird. <laughs> yeah, there's
0: plenty of irony in your story. There's no There's no lack of it. <laughs> <laughs> How do you look back on it now after?
1: Well, and I write about this, but a decade after I wrote that paper, Jezebel and a bunch of other places wrote about sexual harassment at olympic that went unaddressed. Mm-hmm. And Sharna have said that no one had ever brought up a female either performer or intern was harassed or something, and Sharna. Offered to compensate her in free classes, and then she took to the internet and exposed what happened. And everybody else came forward with their stories. This is before me too, and I remember reading that and feeling vindicated, but also frustrated because I I had brought up the same issues in two thousand five, and they went ignored.
0: My question, in a way, one of the cool things I think you really speak to is why a lot of these people are women, and and why there was this kind of suppression that was going on that's part of trying to succeed I think you say it in the book as women don't make waves off stage they make them on stage
1: oh a teacher that I loved who later didn't apologize but kind of like reached out and slightly apologized but yeah I was told by my two favorite people female teachers there that after I wrote that paper women don't make waves off stage we make them on stage and I felt really guilty about writing about my experience at the time and I felt like I had betrayed them and then when somebody at the Chicago Reader asked me to comment and say my side of the story I I didn't I was afraid because I just really wanted I love that community and they felt like family and I I didn't want to be seen as this rabble rouser or no talent fraud who was just trying to call attention to myself by talking about things off stage when the reality was there were so many brilliant women working on those stages who just made my enriched my life in so many ways just watching them perform and seeing that I could do this and seeing a version of myself like someone I wanted to be when I grew up you know just so I really felt like I had betrayed people that um had let me in and uh encouraged me
0: well I guess that's why that's part of my interest in the question is the sort of like it's like the truth-telling member of the alcoholic family gets all the dirt you know <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> that that's the feeling I get of you were saying I didn't even say the worst parts I didn't even name I didn't it. even
1: yeah I think that the women who succeeded in that space and I think this goes for any outsiders who who succeed in a in a in a group that isn't inherently their own, I think you have to make a lot of compromises along the way. I think you have to suppress things about yourself and mold yourself. And um, I think that at the time, I didn't get the level of and I don't want to speak for them or you know, I I can't speak for them, but just I I do think that there is a level of internalized misogyny. There's a generational thing about being in a boys club, having to fight and then then that whole thing of like hurt people hurt people. So if you got abuse coming up, you know, you might be less sympathetic to somebody struggling to come up behind you because mm-hmm. you had to really open all these doors for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to not be that way. I think that it's in every industry and I and I and I do think it's I mean I think we saw it with the Me Too movement of the older generations of women being like that's not harassment, that's not assault. Like, I'll tell you what's assault. And I think a lot of it probably comes from trauma that they endured that was way worse in some ways than anything that we've endured. And and I think that it takes a certain person, maybe someone who's had a lot of therapy or just really works on their own evolution to recognize that. Um, but in my case, with the women who were a decade or so older than me yeah I was blindsided I thought I didn't think that I would be threatening their status or offending them by reporting what I what I experienced but that that seemed to have been the case
0: um so you ended up going to New York and that is that where you're you're, and then you like you said you started doing stand-up and it started to take off and you actually ended up writing for late night
1: as well right yeah so i was doing stand up in chicago my stand up has like never taken off which is actually kind of cool
0: <laughs> my stand up you very... about your stand up never taking off
1: what do i love about it well i never felt any pressure to conform to anything you know i i i've been lucky enough to make money as a writer and director and so Stand up is really just a gift for me, and I think I have a definite fan base of people who get what I'm doing and appreciate it. It's definitely stronger in the UK than it is here for some reason, but yeah, I mean, I I, I love stand up, and I was I have a special that's out now that I was able to shoot when I was very very pregnant. That I can't believe we we shot it. I can't believe how encouraging Peacock was of it. It's called Lady Killer. It's out now. But it's like really just I say what I want to say, and, and it's kind of this gift I just have for myself in the times when I'm not writing or doing other things. And stand-up is very, very labor-intensive. but um, And I could go on about the economics of stand-up. I mean, more than any other form of comedy, stand-up is kind of a pyramid scheme. You get all the money at the top when you're famous, and then there's like no money at the bottom, and you have to work for 15 years for the most part. Doing a lot of unpaid gigs or getting paid in beer beers to even break through. And so, and not, it's not what it used to be. I think it used to be that there were so few people doing it that Roseanne Barr, for example, does a five minute set on late night and then gets a television show. It just doesn't happen like that anymore. And it is the seediest people do stand up. (laughs) So (laughs) stand up has historically been crazy me. If you're just
0: joining us, this is KBOO Portland 90.7 FM. Our guest today on Between the Covers is Jenna Friedman, comedian, writer, and director. But it seems like from part of what... From reading the book, partly one thing that stood out about you in particular is several things you couldn't talk about were STDs or abortion. And one thing I love about um how you evolved in your comedy is from there you actually turned toward sticking with topics that were being avoided all around. And it's one of the things I love about your work. What keeps you inspired to avoid that kind of likability trap of? You know, staying within safe topics, because even then you kept in that direction, it seems.
1: Yeah. I think when I feel that there's a pressure point, I move towards it and not in a shock jock, shock value way. Yeah. And just like a why are we, why does this make us uncomfortable? Let's explore that. And that's kind of my muse. Part of it is darkness and things I'm afraid of and sad things, I think, maybe less sad things, but things I'm afraid of, I like to talk about because then you kind of have control over them. And you can, if you're afraid of something, you can articulate it in a funny way and people can laugh. You all just feel less alone together. So it is therapeutic in that way. But I do think, you know, cultural pressure points are really interesting to me. I remember when I worked on Borat, one of the scenes that I, that I helped write was a pregnancy crisis center scene. And I also helped, in the production of that and I can't go too into detail but I was we were trying to get a fake abortion clinic a pregnancy crisis center to open their doors to us and everything we do is legal but it's creative in how we approach people and I remember thinking oh what if you know are we misleading them this is getting like what if it blows up in our face And then I thought, like, what would the headline be? Comedians prank people who prank vulnerable pregnant people. So I just felt, you know, this is fair game. No matter what we do, these people pretend to be doctors. They wear lab coats. They don't have medical licenses. They find people at their most vulnerable, and they prod them with transvaginal ultrasounds. And this is totally legal and messed up. And they've got to go or at least get called out. So I I do feel like the target was very, very deserving in that situation. But yeah, in general, also with my stand-up, being a very pregnant person, telling, telling jokes during a time where Roe is repealed, I mean, it was heartbreaking, completely expected. But to be able to, and it's so disempowering when you're pregnant, but then when you're pregnant and you're on stage, it's like the one time, I mean, I'd never been a prop comic and I have this prop and people are listening and we're in this crazy moment where our rights are being repealed and to just be able to talk, it felt very, very empowering, and then even when I would tell a joke that had worked when I wasn't pregnant, and all of a sudden, now that I'm pregnant, people are afraid to, it's one joke in particular about miscarriage, people are afraid to laugh, because it's like so real and creepy, but you know the joke worked when you weren't pregnant, so you know the joke works, and then to just kind of look at people and be like, "Uh, if you don't laugh, you're going to stress out the baby, just that kind of playful trolling is that is my favorite type of standup to do. And that's what's so fun. And I think audiences are coming around, but you know, it's not, at least for American audiences, I don't think it's intuitive, of, uh, intuitive of them to laugh with the, you know, young female comic making these really dark jokes. It's just not a mainstream thing. And so as I get older and as my jokes get more pointed, I think I'm definitely finding my audience but yeah, that's why that was a comment about my stand up kind of just being for me because I never ended up on Last Comic Standing. I never really had success like touring at Zanies around the country. I definitely performed at those clubs a lot, especially when I was starting out in the Midwest. But people, a lot of people just go to comedy clubs, particularly in America on a date, to drink, to have fun, to forget about things. They're not going there to, they're not there for a lecture or to think. <laughs> yeah.
0: I guess it's maybe why I I love your work so much because it's got that kind of uncomfortable, dark hilarity that makes me a giant fan. Another chapter I loved was when you interviewed male comics and asked them the questions that people that interviewers asked you or other female comics.
1: Thank you. I realize as I'm doing press for the book that. I might have given people interviewing me a little bit of a complex or hang on, (laughs) like, oh, is she going to make fun of me? And that was never my intent. I'm also, I'm never offended by a dumb question. I just found it really funny to ask guys those questions, but they never, they don't offend me by any means. But I do think think that that was a really
0: beautiful way to point out what's it what it's like to be on the receiving end. I mean, listening to people like Jon Stewart and Patton Oswald talk about how it feels to be asked that and how awful it feels. And for them to say, no one ever asks me anything like this. I thought was one of the most powerful pieces you do. I, I loved that section.
1: It was really fun. I I have them all recorded on my laptop, but I wish I was able to shoot video of them. It just wasn't possible production-wise. But the moments where there's this one moment where, um, and the this question, some of the, the worst questions in there, I mean, they're all real, but I cited them in the book because they're almost unbelievable. And there was this one moment where John is talking to me and then I just segue but back to Louis and that was a segue that I got when I talked to Isaac Chotner at, at the New Yorker and I bring up Isaac because uh, the New Yorker is so credible when they reached out to me to talk about Louis I never would have done it but it was at the same time I was promoting self-focus and I thought maybe the New Yorker has an interesting highbrow approach to this and I do think the interview was ultimately good and I do appreciate Isaac for talking to me but it was so funny the way he kept trying to give the conversation back to louis so that when i did that with john he just like gutturally laughed out loud (laughs) and there are these little moments in the interview that i tried to capture in print and i hope i did but it was so much it was so enjoyable to actually talk to them and the nuances of i remember talking to bob odenkirk and i was so nervous because he was the first person i was asking these questions to and they were real questions that I got. But when you talk to somebody who's only ever been cool and encouraging to you and you're like, do you write your own material? <laughs> that
0: was the like, one that was the one for me. That was the one that I was just like, yeah, had a big reaction. Let's just do that. Can you name some of the questions you found most revealing the way the male comics answered them?
1: Do you have help? is really funny because Fred Armisen was like, um, um, what do you mean? I have a gardener. (laughs) No, you just assume the wife is going to do all of this unpaid, emotional and physical labor. And as a new mom, it's like, I've always known that it's, it's particularly tough for moms, but I don't think I realized that until your child is in preschool. If you put them in daycare, that's one thing. But even when you put them in daycare, they're up all night. I mean, it is, it's not even a full time job because you can clock out of a full time job. It's so much more than that. And unless you have a full time nanny and a husband who's supportive, both of those things, you're screwed. It's just impossible. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that our society has no social safety nets, let alone mandatory paid leave for new moms, it's just, I just don't, it just sets us all up to fail. Well,
0: and and another dimension of it is, I think that that chapter was really nice at sort of bringing in the preoccupation with you as mother or or any woman who's going to be on stage, according to her reproductive status, that they can just ask you anything. Like that was the other thing about, do you talk about anything other than
1: fatherhood was one of my favorites. Oh, right. Well, I I wasn't even pregnant when I- I know. I finished the first draft of the book. I got I, I got pregnant right after. I think I finished the first draft of the book. My body just like relaxed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, but yeah, I wasn't. You know, the book. I finished the book about a little over a year, more than a year ago at this point. Just like with production timelines, it, it's coming out now. There's also this funny, sad anecdote of I asked Norm McDonald, who I worked with on Roseanne, I asked him to be part of the questions and. He got back to me really cool, really quickly, and was like really encouraging. He's like, "Yeah, give me." Like, he's like, "I'm I'm busy right now, but like follow up in a couple of weeks." And then he died, so he knew for <laughs> Norm. But it was really funny that he totally knew he was gonna die, and like it was the nicest blow off ever.
0: <laughs> you got ghosted, and then oh,
1: I got literally ghosted.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, well, one of the, I mean, another question I had about this sort of topic was. I loved the the Louie part of the conversation and so even when I was writing this question I was like I have to apologize as I'm asking it but the question being why do you think women are women comics who are there to talk about their own work end up being asked to sort of forgive apologize for explain comment on it still seems like let's all talk about the dude continues and
1: everybody's also fixated on this one dude he is not the problem there are so many other dudes who either haven't been called out or who have done far worse. It was just like the focus just ended up this outsized focus on him and how we all felt about him and, and, and how like we need to police him when it's like, that's not the issue. The issue is like the entire system and how it's, you know, set up to protect abusers at the expense of people who are victims of their abuse.
0: We got into such light banter. Um, I thought maybe uh, we could go out on um, one of your sex columnist uh, highlights. Would you be willing to read some?
1: Sure. So there was a period of time, and I'll I'll uh, I'll read the intro as well. Okay. So this is from the chapter "Sex Pays." Okay. When I was starting out in comedy, but note, okay, fine. I was eight years in, but I just left the Daily Show, and money was tight. I took on all sorts of odd jobs to pay the rent. One of those jobs was as a sex columnist for a men's fitness magazine. What qualified me for the job? Absolutely nothing. Why did I do it? Because it paid. This was my first experience attempting to inform and lightly troll men at the same time. And it was actually pretty fun. If you're a man and you bought this book because you stumbled upon my Adult Swim show in between reruns of Rick and Morty, this chapter is for you. Question. I've been seeing the same girl on the bus each morning and we make eye contact. And once we actually smile at each other, but that's as far as it's gone. I've even started to stay on her bus, the local, and not switch to the express, so I'll run into her. I wanna to talk to her, but how should I go about it? I don't wanna come off as, I don't wanna come off like a stalker. Okay, answer. Are you a stalker? If so, I'd say, just keep doing what you're doing. If not, please continue reading. For the non-stalker who plots the worker to coincide with his precious commute but wants to take things to the next level, I'd say the next best move after smiling at her on a daily basis is to just break the ice with a simple greeting like, hi. If she says hi back, that's a good sign. Also, pay attention to her body language. If she opens up and turns towards you, maybe continue with a provocative follow-up like, hi, my name is, insert name. If she responds by telling you her name, maybe proceed with a more nuanced question, like asking her where she works. If she tells you Planned Parenthood, tell her that you applaud her heroic efforts in such a scary, hyper-politicized environment to provide communities with affordable and quality health care, such as mammograms, contraceptives, and STD screenings, and ask her if there's anything you can do to help. She'll tell you that you can donate to Planned Parenthood via their website at plannedparenthood.org. Your next best bet is to get out your phone and make a really generous donation. After all, it's the least you can do. Once your phone is out, slyly ask your crush for her number. $20 says she'll give it to you, and so will I. You stud. That was literally the only reason I wrote the sex column <laughs> to just have asked guys to donate to Planned Parenthood and other groups providing reproductive health care on the front lines.
0: Perfect moment to finish up our interview you'll be <laughs> at helium on may 13th 3 p.m such a joy to spend time with you
1: thank you so much thank you so much <laughs> It's the wind
0: blowing in the rain. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening to Between the Covers here on KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. Original music from Karen to Louie.
1: Hiding in the clouds. I don't know why. I hear you crying out loud.